But it is a phrase that we all recognize. Uh, it's that life is not fair. Uh, we've all heard it more times than we can count. We've all experienced its reality. Maybe uh, your mom said that to you when you didn't get the snack you were hoping for. I know we get to say that to Lena and hope a lot. But a cheated business deal, an ignored rule, an undeserved insult, an unmet expectation. Uh, we, we've experienced it in a lot of forms. But it's still a slippery concept, isn't it? Fairness. What does fairness even mean? What would it mean for your life to be fair? Is it that everybody gets the same opportunity or that everyone gets the same starting point or that the same standards are applied to everybody? I remember in seventh grade, my reading teacher had a poster on the wall of our classroom. Uh, It had a quote on it that I I remember because it was thought-provoking. It said, fairness does not mean that everyone gets the same. Fairness means that everyone gets what they need. As soon as I read that, I knew I disagreed with it. But I wasn't sure why. I didn't have a a good reasoned out response. And I didn't hear anything that happened that day in class because I was thinking about that. Uh, And I thought about it every time I saw the poster. This this week, though, I heard um, somebody comment on uh, the relationship of fairness uh, to Christianity. And... Now, basically, they said that in Christianity, in Christianity, there's room for conversation about fairness. Um, but it has to be founded on and superseded by the reality of justice. Justice is a concept that we have much more biblical language to think about and to talk about. Um, just as a bit of an aside, I did a, I did a quick search on uh, the idea of fairness and the idea of justice in the Bible. And in the English Standard Version, the concept of fairness as we're talking about it, uh, not like talking about the fair neck of the lady in, like in Song of Solomon, but like fairness as we're talking about it, happens about five times in the entire Bible. Um, justice, on the other hand, very conservatively, happens uh, about 170 times, at least that much. Uh, and, and many more times if you count some other usages of it. Uh, so just clearly, just looking at those numbers, we have a much richer framework to think about justice and injustice than, than we do for fairness and unfairness. God is just. He's righteous and he judges every person and every society with impartiality. The same standard applies to the poor orphan as to the rich investor. He guards the unguarded. He holds the domineering authority in check. And because God is just, He's generous and He's equitable and He is severe. All of these things are because of God's justice. And God's justice is wrapped up in His holiness. He he cannot act otherwise because it's part of His unchanging nature. So for us, for Christians, we recognize that if someone condones or participates in injustice, they have actively contradicted the character of God, right? To ignore justice is sin. Sadly, though, we, we all know that our broken world is filled with injustice. The powerless go uncared for. Innocence are condemned. Wars are waged. Pride and pretense drive entire societies into ruin. You have felt it, right? Uh, maybe you've been pinned with the fault of a coworker, 
or a political connection promoted somebody who was undeserving of it. A savings account is drained because the insurance company wasn't forthright about your coverage. Churches are bombed on Easter morning. A man's herd of buffalo is poisoned because he's a Christian. The local government denies a burial plot to a Christian because he's not Hindu. Injustices. This is the world that we live in. More likely than not, when you reach the end of your life, there will be a very long list of injustices because this world is simply broken. And both the just and the unjust will have to endure injustices. So our task this morning will be to drill into our text to understand how followers of Jesus should endure injustice. Because we don't want to simply grin and bear it, uh, because that would be disingenuous, to just put on a smile and say, I'm okay, and lie about it. But neither do we want to become embittered and hateful against those who commit the injustice. So in the midst of injustice, how do we live out the gospel that we have believed? This is the question that we have as we approach our text. How does the gospel inform our response to injustice? And our text today is not an isolated example of injustice. Um, in fact, in our, in our most recent stretch of narrative, Paul has been subjected to continued official injustices. Uh, We could make a really long list from the wider narrative, just an axe, look at the entire Bible. We could look at examples from our lives pretty easily. We could do this. But for today, we'll limit ourselves just to what has most recently happened. So a quick recap. Going back to when Paul was in Jerusalem, so he, he spent a long time driving to get to Jerusalem so they could be there for the celebration. Paul uh, he was going through a, through a purification r- ritual at the temple uh, when he was accused and attacked by a Jewish mob. And then he was seized by the Roman, Roman tribune and he was wrongfully bound. The first small injustice maybe here. Interestingly, this is the first time that we see the Romans trying to figure out what Paul had done wrong. Because they're not sure. Uh, in, in chapter 22, verse, verse 24, it says this, The tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks saying that he should be examined by flogging, and here's why. To find out why they were shouting against him like this. And you'll notice that this is not unique to the tribune back in Jerusalem. Uh, None of the Roman officials that we see ever find any legitimate charges against Paul. And yet, they require him to remain imprisoned. He was eventually sent to Felix, the governor of the province, and he defended himself against any accusations, and Felix found that he had done nothing against the Roman laws. But because Paul didn't pervert justice by offering a bribe to Felix, Felix, as a favor to the Jews, left Paul in prison even after he left office. Uh, And at this point, Paul has been in prison for two years without a single legitimate accusation against him. Then Festus takes up the seat of governor. He takes Felix's spot. We'll see Festus again today. And and he again hears Paul. He doesn't find him guilty of any wrongdoing. And when Festus tries to draw out the process by sending Paul back to Jerusalem, Paul uses his right to appeal to Caesar. Uh, And this is where our text picks up today. So Acts 25, starting verse 13. It's a longer text. Uh, So buckle up. Now... When some days had passed, Agrippa the king and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and greeted Festus. 
And as they stayed there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, There is a man left prisoner by Felix, and when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews laid out their case against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. I answered them that it was not the custom of the Romans to give up anyone before the accused met the accusers face to face and had opportunity to make his defense concerning the charge laid against him. So, when they came together here, I made no delay. But on the next day, I took my seat on the tribunal and ordered the man to be brought. When the accusers stood up, they brought no charge in his case of such evils as I supposed. Rather, they had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. Being at a loss how to investigate these questions, I asked whether he wanted to go to Jerusalem and be tried there regarding them. But Paul had appealed to be kept in custody for the decision of the emperor. I ordered him to be held until I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, said he, you will hear him. So on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp, and they entered the audience hall with the military, military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. Then at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. And Festus said, King Agrippa, and all who are present with us, you see this man about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me, both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. But I found that he had done nothing deserving death. And as he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him. But I have nothing definite to write to my lord about him. Therefore, I've brought him before you all and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we have examined him, I may have something to write, for it seems to me unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. So Agrippa said to Paul, You have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, I am going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. My manner of life from my youth, spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our twelve tribes hope to attain, as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope I am accused by the Jews, O King. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth, and I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they, when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme, and in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, Who are you, Lord? 
And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day I have had the help that comes from God, and so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become as I am, except for these chains. Then the king rose, and the governor, and Bernice, and those who were sitting with them. And when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, this man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. Let's pray as we continue. Father, as we consider this text, would you grip our hearts with the truths of your gospel, of this this truth, this uh, remembrance of what Jesus Christ has done to free us from our sin and to deliver us whole uh, into your throne room. Help us to, to remember, to, to think of our lives in a way that is sober-minded, to consider what has happened, what will happen, and all of these things in light of the truths found in your gospel. May we live holy lives that are faithful to you. Prepare our hearts to respond to your word rightly. Let me pray these things in your name. Amen. So our text today is one of those that that the more you read it, the more frustrating it feels. Festus actually comes right out and says to Agrippa that he doesn't know what charges are against Paul. He's holding a man. He's been holding him for two years in prison. 
And he's going to send him to Caesar. And he says, I don't know what to tell Caesar what he did. So could you help me with this? Like, if, if look up in verse 25 if you go there. He says, But I found that he had done nothing deserving death, and as he himself appealed to, imp, to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him. But I have nothing definite to write to my lord about him. I don't have anything to write. Therefore I have brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we have examined him, I may have something to write. For it seems to me unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. So the entire preface of Paul's defense today is so that they can figure out, has he actually done anything wrong? Because we haven't found anything up to this point. Again and again. It actually turns out at the end of our text that Paul's case is accepted by King Agrippa and Festus and all the prominent men of the city. It goes as well as it could have. But still, Paul is left in chains. I don't think it's a coincidence, by the way, that they finally feel free to make this pronouncement only after he's appealed to Caesar. Because now they can say he's innocent, but he appealed to Caesar, so it's not our call. And in all of this, um, just continued injustice, continuing to be in chains, even though his innocence, innocence is obvious really to all. Um, and it's in all of this we see that Paul is an example that we can emulate and how to faithfully respond to the injustices that we will all see. Some small, right? Like an insult that we maybe can overlook. Still an injustice. Uh, or, or some huge and, see, and seemingly earth-shattering like uh, the churches that were bombed just last week in Sri Lanka. So let's, uh, the first point, uh, we faithfully respond to injustice by seeking justice so it's happened several times before our text and it happens again here that when Paul is faced with accusations against him he doesn't just roll over and play dead while unjust punishments fall on his hat each time he offers a defense for himself and the gospel and even in our text today Paul wouldn't have been required to offer the defense that he does He's already appealed to Caesar. He's going to go. But still, he takes the opportunity to clear his name by systematically delegitimizing every claim that's been leveled against him. In fact, before the defense is over, he actually has to defend his own sanity because of the claims of the gospel. <clears throat> when faced with injustice of any kind, we should do what we can to fight it. We should, we should seek Justice. It's a clear implication of the gospel. James uh, goes so far as to say that religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this. To visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. It seems obvious, right? It seems so odd. Like this point, seeking, we should respond to injustice by seeking justice. It seems so obvious that you might feel intellectually insulted by my even saying it. But, but we have to say it. And not only that, I think, I think we need to say it more often. Because we are so good at finding excuses to be passive. So there's an example of this unbiblical passivity in the face of injustice. It's a, it's a subcurrent of thought. It's not something that's really out in the open. It's followed even though it's not verbalized. It's the idea that, well, Jesus silently suffered all the way to the cross without speaking in his own defense. So we should do the same. 
When you're slandered, say nothing. Jesus promised that slander and suffering would come, so you should just endure. True. You should endure. Jesus did promise suffering would come, but when Jesus was silent at the feet of his accusers, it was to fulfill the prophecy that he would be silent as a lamb would be silent before his shears. Every other time, even in his own life, when there were accusations leveled against him, he would defend himself for the glory of God. He would defend the gospel that he was preaching. And in every other example in the New Testament, especially in Acts, not just Paul, we see wrong, wrongful accusations coming against believers, and they do seek justice. So if you're falsely slandered at work, and it becomes widely accepted as true, even if it's not, it's not only your reputation that suffers. Your life is a testimony to the gospel and to the glory of God. So as much as it depends on you, defend the integrity of your reputation for the sake of the gospel. Uh, another example of uh, seeking out passivity is when uh, we hide behind God's sovereignty. So we are a people who love to rest in the sovereignty of God, and rightly so, right? The sovereignty of God should help us sleep at night better than any ergonomic pillow ever could, right? What, what a grace to know that this is true. But at the same time, it cannot be an excuse for us to meander around when God would have us act. The sovereignty of God is not an excuse for inaction. So when you hear the word injustice, take, a, take tabs on, on the, the associations in your mind right now. When you hear the word injustice, what comes to mind? Maybe a, a picture or a smell or a feeling. Do you have a picture of an orphan flash before your eyes? And maybe somebody that you know? Do you remember a talk about social injustice that you heard uh, maybe a few years ago? Maybe you can remember the smell of the open sewage in a slum from an international trip that you went on. Or maybe you remember the feeling of betrayal left from someone close to you. Whatever comes to your mind when you think about injustice, is, is this thing in your mind, is this something for which God would have you actively fight against? What's the thing? Maybe you weren't able to think of a thing. I didn't give you a lot of time to think. Well, when you consider injustices in, in, in your life that you see, is it something that God would have you actively fight against? And just a gut check, have you used the sovereignty of God or the responsibility of other people to hide from what you know faithfulness requires of you? I can't answer those questions, but I encourage you to ponder them as we move forward. So um, the second point we're looking at. We faithfully respond to injustice by, the second point, Tim, uh, by trusting the promises of God. So, even as, I'm going to move on these books because I think it make it way on that last point. Um, even as I warn us not to hide in cowardice behind the sovereignty of God, I still want to affirm and remind us that we must also throw ourselves on the sovereignty of God by acting in light of the promises He's given us. 
So Paul trusts in the promises of God and, and he can confidently testify as a result. In this chapter and in the coming chapters, we're going to see Paul walk and even swim through vast uncertainties because he trusts in the sure promises of God. In our passage today, Paul boldly speaks because he boldly trusts in the promises of God. Look, in, uh, in chapter 26, verse 6, he says that he, he shares the same hope as the Jews, that the dead would be raised. And to which he says, why do you think it's incredible that the dead would be raised if God is who he says he is? In 26, uh, verses 16 to 18, Jesus promises him the honor of delivering the gospel to the Gentiles. And, and this is the real reason that the Jews have chastised him, chastised him. It's even the reason why he's giving his current defense, right? And beyond each of these, Paul can give his defense with confident assurance because back in chapter 23, verse 11, Jesus had personally promised Paul that he would testify to his name in Rome. Whether in chains or in liberty, liberty, he would testify to uh, the name of the Lord in Rome. And so Paul can confidently walk forward knowing that the Lord is not done with me yet. So it may be that Jesus has not appeared to you in a vision. Uh, and told you where you're going to testify to his name. But he has given us an authoritative and trustworthy collection of, of true promises in his word. So this is a challenge that's been repeated to me by most of the people who I respect most in my life. It's, it's, and it's, it's the kind of thing that my grandfather said growing up all the time. He said, what, what's the promise that you found in the word of God this week? Find, search the word of God for promises and intentionally claim those promises. So what, consider a part of what Timothy read in our middle reading. And it said this, Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. So as a follower of Jesus, you've been called to bless others so that you would eternally receive a blessing. There's a promise there. Bless and do not curse. Another promise that we can lay hold of, I'm sure Paul was clinging to this as he gave his defense, uh, it's that God is the ultimate arbiter of justice. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul wrote this. He said, With me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. For I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart then each one will receive his commendation from God. So the justice or injustice of a human court, which the human courts in Paul's case have proven injust at every turn, the justice or injustice of a human court is not the final word for us or for anyone. And every moment of worldly injustice, every Nazi who fled to different countries and never met justice, we can entrust ourselves to a faithful creator who says, vengeance is mine. Justice will be the Lord's. So go back to that injustice that you thought about a few minutes ago. Uh, We mentioned orphans and social justice and slums and personal betrayal. 
Is there a promise of God that would embolden you to stand against that injustice for the glory of God? Because I would personally guarantee that if God has burdened your heart against a particular injustice, then He has given you promises in His Word that would either address that issue or it would address the hang-ups in your heart that have prevented you from standing against them. So, homework. Consider the injustices that you've recognized in your life and find promises in the Word of God to live in light of. A third point, the final point. We faithfully respond to injustice by preaching the gospel in love. I don't know if you can see that. It looks like it's at the bottom of the screen. Um, Preaching the gospel in love When I think about my own heart and the way that Paul acts in this text, this would have been the most difficult for me if I had been in Paul's position. Paul has been wrongly imprisoned for more than two years because people just like the ones that he's talking to in our text have been too cowardly and selfish to stand up for Paul's freedom. But still, Paul's goodwill toward them is unshakable. He boldly speaks the gospel in the midst of his defense and calls Agrippa to believe what had been promised by the prophets and Moses that Jesus would suffer and rise from the dead. So let's talk about Agrippa for a moment. Agrippa was a regional king. He was one of the heirs of King Herod who ruled at the time when Jesus was born. This this guy's name was actually Herod Agrippa. Um, And so I'm sure you noticed the name Bernice in there. Bernice was Agrippa's sister. She divorced another man to be in a sinfully intimate relationship with Agrippa. They weren't married, but they were living together. And Paul, Paul knew these things. He knew that Agrippa was familiar with Judaism. He professed belief in Judaism. And that he was living in open, unrepentant sin with Bernice. And in this text, he says, I'm grateful that I get to give my defense to you because you, you're familiar with Judaism. So I can speak boldly of the gospel in open terms. I know that you understand who God is, even though you're in rebellion to him. And he calls him to believe. And then it picks up in verse 28. He says this. Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. So, so for Paul, this is a sign that the gospel has fully sunken into his heart. You know, we think about the commands of Scripture. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Or pay no one evil for evil, but give thought to what is honorable in the sight of all. We all know the story of Jonah, right? It's in every kid's book. At least kid's Bible. The Old Testament prophet and missionary who was the exact opposite of this principle. Preaching the gospel in love. So Jonah exemplifies someone who hated his enemies and wished eternal damnation upon them. Jonah runs away from preaching repentance to the people of Nineveh, right? That's part of the story. He runs away. God makes the ship 
throw him into a whale, the whale spits him out at Nineveh, right? That's the part. And that's usually where the kids' stories stop. They don't usually mention what's at the end of the book. At the end of the book, Jonah reveals why he ran. Jonah ran from God's call because he knew that if the people of Nineveh actually repented, then God would show them mercy. And he didn't want them to be shown mercy. He wanted them to be destroyed. In fact, God causes a plant to grow near Jonah so that he would have shade. And then God kills the plant. And Jonah is so filled with hate that he's more upset about this plant dying than the 120,000 people who would have been killed in the judgment of God. It's in Jonah that we see our natural state. Loving those who are easy to love, hating those who work against us. Friends, if we have believed the gospel, our hearts are shaped differently. Now we love because he first loved us. 1 John 4. Or Romans 5. God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more Now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life? More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have reconciliation. Brothers and sisters, may we share the gospel with unceasing and unqualified love, even to an enemy who would see us fail and in pain and imprisoned. How how unloving it would be to withhold the gospel from one who has committed a petty offense against us, even a grave offense against us. So somebody would, people upstairs. As we approach the table today, we are reminded of this gospel, that while we were still sinners, Jesus the Christ died for us. We, we are reminded that uh, we, we faithfully respond to injustice by living in light of the gospel, by simply seeking the justice that the gospel demands, by even as we seek it as much as we can, knowing that it is not ultimately our, responsible, uh, our responsibility to carry out justice, that God is the ultimate arbiter of justice. And as we do all of this preaching the gospel in love, not in spite or in hoping that someone would not believe it so they would be punished, but in love.